God, thank you that we can come together together as your people uh, this day. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for what, uh, for what we share in Jesus Christ, the common salvation that we have. And we thank you that the joy that this provides for us, how you enable us through this to be able to, <clears throat> to, be able to worship you, how you make provision for us to be forgiven of all of our sins, how you give us a new heart so that we can do the things that you desire for us to do, and that your desire becomes our desire. And we know that there are times when that is not the case, when we want to do what we want, when we desire in uh, some senses to do what is against your will. And we pray that you would use this time of instruction and going to your word to, uh, to challenge that and to go to fight back against that, to fight against the desires of the flesh, that we would recognize that we are no longer slaves to sin, but that we are now slaves of God and slaves of righteousness, and that we would act accordingly. And we pray that you would help us to have insight into your word to know what that looks like so that we might, uh, so that we might easily, uh, might quickly be able to know what your word says in any given situation and be able to apply it with wisdom and with humility. God, we pray that you would, uh, you would make this time fruitful, that you would help us to know and understand what you have said, and that we would glorify your name through this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so this morning we are going to continue to look at our, uh, our section on government, on the Christian and the government. And uh, what we're going to do is look at the second half of the Christian's basic responsibilities toward the state. We've talked a lot about what the state should be, about what the government should be, and what government exists for. And uh, before we get into how Christians should try to uh, get the government to be and to do what they think it should be, or what our involvement in that may or may not be, what we want to do is to talk about the basic posture and the basic responsibilities that we have toward the government. And I think this is important to come first before we think about trying to change uh, someone else. We know that the government is responsible to do certain things before God. But when it comes to, when it comes to um, things where there's an interaction between two parties, whether it be in marriage, whether it be in uh, parents and children, or <clears throat> employers, employees, as Scripture kind of um, puts those in certain categories of slaves and masters, not because that's the exact same thing, but that's a little bit of the principles behind it. Um, anytime that happens, we ought not to just look to the other party and say, you need to change in order to become this. But we need to look and we need to look at ourselves and say, what do we need to do as far as what the Bible commands for us to do? And so if we're going to go, for example, and say, you know, the government is not following the Bible about what it should be, and we're going to pray and we're going to try to think, you know, whatever the Bible says about how to change that, if it says anything, which we'll consider, then we ought to look to ourselves first and say, are we fulfilling our responsibilities that the Bible lays down as far as how we respond to the government? So this is the first place that we should look when we think about how we should uh, respond to whatever the government is that's in place. And it is, uh, it, so it is basic responsibilities toward the state. Now, last time that we were here, we looked at three of these. And I'll just walk through them to review a little bit for those who may not have been here or for uh, uh, just to jog your memory and lead us into the, the second part of this today. We started with obedience to government. And this is the fundamental, uh, fundamental instruction. Government is spoken of as authorities. It is spoken of as authority, which means that it has the right to tell you what to do. Now, that does not... Uh, you know, go out into every category. There are different spheres of authority. There are different types of authority. And the government does not have every single right in that sense. But 
the government does have wide-ranging authority that is given to it, and this authority is not given to it merely by man's decree, functionally, but it exists because God ordains government. So in Romans 13, it says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. And in that, there are two, at least two, key principles, one of which is that government itself is a divinely sanctioned institution, meaning that God is, generally speaking, in favor of government. God does not look at the world and say, anarchy is the way to go, but government exists because God establishes that such a thing should exist. And then even more uh, particularly, governments that do exist are by the providential hand of God, uh, by his decree, they are those which exist in any given place at any given time. And this doesn't mean that everything about what they do or even that much about what they do pleases him, but it does mean that if it's there, that it is there to some degree because God has it there for that time and for that purpose. So as long as that's the case and as long as they are not telling you to do something that is evil, then the general posture should be, I am going to do what the government says. I am going to be in subjection to the governing authorities. So Romans 13 talks about the, the need for obedience. It commends good behavior, verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil, do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So uh, last week, I uh, wanted to encourage you that you should make sure your heart is generally one of submission when it comes to the authorities that God has placed over you, that you're not excusing your own uh, desires for autonomy on the grounds of, well, my authority is evil, and so therefore I don't really have to do anything that they say. The Bible speaks about that kind of thing, uh, for example, in, uh, in other spheres of authority. So in 1 Peter chapter 3, let me read a couple of texts to you that, that, that uh, speak to that issue of when the authority is evil. Uh, it says, 1 Peter 3, 1, in the same way you wives... Be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So there are going to be women who say, yeah, my husband is disobedient to the word, so I don't have to do what he says. And Peter says, no, actually, that's not the way it works. Instead, you actually uh, have a, a desire to win them to the word by virtue of this. <clears throat> so you need to still submit to the authority that is over you. Uh, also, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, at the very beginning of the chapter, <clears throat> it says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. This, uh, on a blanket level, indicates for us that it's not just believing masters who are to be submitted to, but also those who are not. And then uh, in First Peter, uh, let me find it. Yes, First Peter chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect 
not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are what? Unreasonable. Also to those who are unreasonable. Unfortunately, many times Christians can justify our refusal to do anything the government says that we don't like on the basis of the government being unreasonable. They're just full of, it's full of people who are anti-God, against scripture, they don't like Christians, and so they're unreasonable. They, they don't have a heart that's really, they're not, they're not trying to do what God says government should do. They're not trying to fulfill that role in a godly way. Therefore, I don't have to follow them. And this is not the way that the Bible speaks about authority. It speaks about submitting even to authority that is unreasonable. When you disagree with what they say, and when it's not even just an honest disagreement, but when they're just acting foolish, when they're just being completely unreasonable, even then you have to go along with what they say if they're not telling you to go against the scriptures. So this is a very strong statement, but this is the way that the Bible describes submitting to governmental authority. Now, this doesn't mean you can't try to do something about it, but it does mean that while it exists, this is our responsibility to the government. We talked about, um, as well in 1 Peter 2, the motivation to keep the gospel at the front of this, that we're trying to make sure that the gospel witness is there, that we are not bringing the, the uh, the name of Christ under reproach by virtue of our rebellion against this. Uh, 1 Peter 2.15, such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So obedience is the basic responsibility, the first basic responsibility of Christians toward the government, and we need to make sure that's what we're doing. All right, Uh, we also talked about taxes, Romans 13, verses 6 and 7. Romans 13, 6 and 7. Um, The reason why we pay taxes is Even if people are not perfect or righteous, they are still in a position that is ordained by God. And therefore, they are, uh, even uh, if unwitting, they are the servants of God. People may not get into those positions at all to try to say, yeah, I'm going to serve God. And so I'm going to get into government, even if that's not at all why they do it. Still, the reality is that if they're in that position, they are functioning in a divinely ordained role. And therefore, we should make sure that uh, that they have provision in order to do that. Excuse me. Uh, So then. If, they are, if the government is going to function, it's going to need money. And if, uh, and, and if the government is going to get money, then generally speaking, it's going to have to do so through taxes. Therefore, we pay taxes. Um, and then we looked at a third, uh, a third principle that we need to follow, which is honor and respect. <clears throat> we saw the Old Testament principle carried over even into the new of not speaking evil of a ruler of your people. Uh, from Acts 23, Paul shows that he would have spoken differently to the ruler that he spoke to if he had known that that person was the high priest. He would have, uh, he would have shown more respect than he did, which is a very interesting uh, little window into his thinking. Titus chapter 3 tells us that we're supposed, to, uh, we're supposed to be submissive to rulers, authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, and to malign no one, to speak evil of no one including those authorities. So there's to be honor and respect in the way that we speak about governing authorities. So these are the three, uh, the three first things that we looked at last time, obedience, taxes, and then honor and respect. Do we have any questions or do you have any further thoughts on that before we look at uh, the other parts for this morning? Anything on government that's been on your mind on those three matters? Questions, comments, any other biblical text that uh, you think that we should be considering?
Very good then. Uh, let's continue on and turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I want to look at another responsibility that we have, which is prayer. Prayer. 1 Timothy chapter 2. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 2, starting in verse 1, Paul says, First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. So there is a universal instruction here, but then he focuses it on a certain group. For kings and all who are in authority. For kings and all who are in authority. So he takes it from uh, essentially the highest level and brings it all the way down and says, I want you to pray for people who are in the government. People who are in authority. This no doubt refers to um, government officials, probably has ramifications for anyone who is involved in government on any level, including uh, law enforcement officers, including judges, anyone like that. So for kings and all who are in authority. And he gives uh, multiple reasons why this ought to be the case. So he says in verse 2, he gives the first reason, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. What is he, in essence, praying for there? When he says that, what is he telling us to pray for? How would you summarize that? We're praying for government so that what, Patrick? Yeah. 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 So, okay. So, what government is involved in uh, peace in maybe multiple ways. So, what are some of the possibilities here? What what would um, what would be the opposite of a tranquil and quiet life? What might that look like where government is involved? What's that? Yeah, yeah, restless and loud as opposed to peace, tranquil and cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, the Bible describes uh, Israel as, uh, there's in the, uh, the, the promised curses and blessings that if they're disobedient to the covenant stipulations, then they would have no rest. And, and they would just constantly be worried on edge. You know, uh, sleep is going to flee from you and you're always going to be worried. And one person is going to run from uh, or a hundred people are going to run from one and, and a thousand from five. And there's just going to be, you know, wherever you go, you're always, what, what's happening? What's going to go on? You know? So, yeah, worry all the time. Yeah, yeah disorder and chaos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Poor. Okay. Yeah, so there are some places where where um, government kind of steps back and lets people do whatever they want, and it's not the kind of place that you would necessarily want to venture through or be living or or working. Yeah, yeah. So maybe some real life examples uh, going on in recent history and even in our own nation. Uh, some places that you might not want to be. 
so yes, uh, you, have, you have that side of things, which is that government is supposed to keep order and supposed to uh, prevent there from just being general turmoil. So you have that side where they are to keep the peace, to prevent, um, you know, to prevent what anarchy allows, which is uh, might makes right, and basically whoever is the one who's willing to use force and whoever can take on the power for themselves can mistreat people however they want. That, uh, that's certainly one way where government keeps peace, where uh, the absence or the poor functioning of government does not. And then, of course, the, the other side of this would be that government very often doesn't just step back or fail to meet its requirement towards society, but sometimes it actively comes after God's people. And such was the case with many of the uh, Roman emperors and other officials during this time. So when it says that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity, this would also functionally work out to where we would not be persecuted by the government. That would be the other prayer, that we might be able to just live the Christian life, as Patrick was saying, without having to worry about those kinds of attacks or without the government maybe not uh, doing it, but allowing it, letting people get away with it. I think it was in Acts 18 when um, one of the, the uh, Christians in the city where Paul was preaching was being beaten right before the, the judge and he just like he didn't pay any attention he didn't even care just being just being beaten up um, he wasn't concerned about that matter is what it says that's not what we want okay we want to be able to be free from persecution actively by the state and we want the state to prevent people from persecuting us so we really want to be able to live a life that is peaceful now, this goes against, and you may know this text and think about it in these terms, but this goes against uh, something that I hear fairly commonly, which is the statement that people make that we should, quote, pray for persecution. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Maybe you've said that yourself. Why do people think that we ought to want persecution? What's their goal in saying that? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Check out YouTube. Yeah, Matt. Anybody else? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. So there is a there is a statement that we will be persecuted. Second Timothy three twelve. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This does not mean that we should ask for it to happen or that we should even desire for it to happen. If God so wills, then we should do that. What's, what's behind it often, of course, yeah, uh, that it, the, it's the thought that when a church 
exists in a state where it is easy to become a Christian, where there's no cost involved, where it's socially acceptable or even socially desirable to claim the name of Christ, then it's really easy to say that you're a Christian without actually being one. And that causes all kinds of problems. Uh, when, when there are people in the church who are not born again and who have made no actual, um, no, they have not repented and put their faith in Christ, there's no actual change of heart, then the church does suffer from that in certain ways. 1 Corinthians 5 says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump and that where there's godlessness in an, even an individual person in the church where that's tolerated, that that influences the other people in the church. And you certainly can see the effect where when, uh, when unbelievers openly associate with the church, not having any even concern that they might need to turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ, but they just kind of come together, then the standard of godliness has to be lowered to accommodate that on some level. The standard of proclamation of the truth has to accommodate that on some level, or else they're going to want to leave uh, for the most part. Not everybody does. But uh, that, what that results in then is that the people of God also can't be sanctified the way that they need to be, and it's going to just reduce the, the level of purity of the church. So there's that. Uh, also, the corporate witness of the church will be hindered because you have many people claiming Christ who then go out into the world and act like they're not Christians at all. And I think we all see this and would recognize that there are something would be beneficial for there not to be so many people so easily saying, I'm a Christian. Now, there are some benefits to that as well that we ought not to just write off so lightly, which is that it is, uh, it's not all that objectionable for you to talk to people about the Bible, about the gospel, about Christianity. Uh, the fact that nominal Christianity exists does sometimes at least give you an, a door into being able to talk to people. Not that it's the ideal way, but it is something that we should be thankful for. But nonetheless... People, uh, they see that the church has in many cases thrived under persecution uh, because they are forced to grapple with certain things. Do I really believe this? Am I taking this seriously? Is this worth it? Is it worth it to go to church? Is it worth it to name the name of Christ? And so it, it, it forces the issue in many ways. Now with that said, right before 1 Timothy are a couple of letters where the church was suffering in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And Paul was concerned that this pressure would be put on the church uh, that would make it more difficult for people to actually hold fast to the truth of God. And he was, uh, he was not that thrilled about it. And he, um, he, he tells them in chapter 3, uh, you know, we, we sent Timothy, verse 2, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Uh, for indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And, and what he's implying there is that this kind of suffering and affliction, even though Paul had warned about it, even though he told the, the believers in Acts 14, for example, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. He still recognized that this was a real temptation to abandon what they had professed. And uh, Jesus talks about that in the parable of the sower when he talks about persecution or affliction arising because of the word. So it's not something that he wants. It's not something that he says is good. It can be the kind of trial that demonstrates the reality of someone's faith. But overall, he thinks of it as, uh, as a negative. It does have certain effects, but it's something he says we should pray that it would not take place. So yeah, we should be praying for our own sake, we should be praying for government officials and governmental authorities that 
there would be peace, uh, not only in general, but also that our own circumstances would be peaceful. So, yes, praying for favor with the government, praying that we might be able to meet freely, praying that we might not have things that hinder us from doing that, uh, praying that there wouldn't be disfavor toward us by, uh, among government officials and so on. Excuse me, and so on. Uh, that's what we should be asking for. So we should be praying for our own peace. And then the second thing in this text in 1 Timothy 2 is we should be praying for their salvation, for their salvation. Verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God <clears throat> is a Savior, first of all. Uh, we sometimes think only about the Son as Christ as our Savior, and somehow we even put it that, you know, God the Father is kind of standing off and that Christ is the Savior. Of course, that's a wrong view of God. God is the one who sent Jesus to save us in the first place. God is a Savior by nature. This is what he wants to do. And this is expressed here in verse 4 by this statement. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, there are a lot of things going on there in that, in that verse. Uh, as directly pertains to government, what this means is that they are not excluded from God's desire for them to be saved. God doesn't look at the government and say, man, that is a bunch of rotten people. I don't want anything good for them. They can just, they can just literally end up in hell and I'll be happy about that. God doesn't think that way about them. He includes them in the all men whom he wants to be saved, uh, saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So we should be praying for their salvation just as we would for anyone else. So we need to keep this in mind. We're praying for them and we're praying not just with a sort of self-interested prayer, which is fine and which is commended here, but also with their interest in view, their eternal peace, their salvation. That's what we should be asking for. Uh, while we're here, by the way, you may have some, some questions about this. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? In this, what we need to do is to distinguish between God's uh, will of precept and God's will of decree. Because God desires, uh, in, in the sense of what he has chosen to do, we know how many people or what percent of people does God save. More than zero and less than 100. So somewhere in between zero and 100, he saves some people, but not all. And he is in control of all things, and he has decreed that certain people will be saved. And he has even chosen from before time begins for certain people to be saved. And he has ordained that they would hear the gospel and that they would respond to it. And when they do hear the gospel, he is the one who brings them to spiritual life through the gospel. So God, in in uh, in uh, by virtue of his will of decree, of his absolute sovereignty, uh, he has determined that only certain people will be saved because he's in control of all things, and that's the way that it plays out. That's the way he desires for that to happen. But when it comes to what is pleasing to him, God wants people to be saved. This is his rule. He wants people to be saved. So when he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, that certainly would fit within that desire of going and Everybody being, uh, having the gospel preached to them, the call is given to anyone who will respond, and that it would be delightful to God in a moral sense if everyone responded through the truth of the gospel. And just because he knows that everyone won't, and just because he has 
determined that he is only going to work in certain people to save them, that doesn't mean that it would not be pleasing to him and that it's not his will in the moral sense for people to be saved. So when he says he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, I think that's what's going on there. Uh, There also is in this uh, perhaps that he desires all kinds of men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, There may be an angle of that as well, which is simply saying God doesn't exclude even government officials from his desire that they be saved. So that's another component of this as well. Uh, But he does, this God wants salvation to take place. And so it is appropriate that we should pray for this. And when we pray for government officials and their salvation, I don't know about you, but it's, it's easy for me to be a little bit like, but will they really believe you know, is that, are, are we sure about that? And then I think about my own self and my own life. And, you know, maybe you think about yourself and your life. And you think about how unlikely every salvation that has ever happened is. And every person coming to Christ ever is. And we say, God is able to do this. God is able to save anyone. And the Apostle Paul is the one who is writing this. And think about how hostile he was toward Christ. And God saved him. So we should never be pessimistic about this. We should know that God not only uh, wants us to pray for this, but that he is able to bring it about. Okay, so that is prayer for the government, for our peace and for their salvation. Questions, comments on government and prayer? Maybe I'll ask you this. What else could we pray for? with regard to the government. This is just one passage, but what are some other things that we can pray for the government about? That they would have wisdom, yes. Yeah, even if they're not saved, it it is good for government to have wisdom, isn't it? So it would be good to pray that they might have wisdom. Mm -hmm. That they would make uh, wise decisions. Um, there's an example in, um, or, or that they would make decisions that are favorable for God's people. Uh, in Second Samuel, David is on the run from his son Absalom, who's, who has staged a coup, and he's taken over. And David prays that the Lord would make the counsel of Ahithophel, the chief advisor, foolishness, which means that Absalom would reject Ahithophel's counsel. In those days, his counsel, the Bible says, was regarded as, as the voice of God. So everybody listened to what he said. Everybody just did what he said. But on this occasion, even though he gave good counsel, Absalom rejected it. And what that led to was his downfall and David's uh, ultimately restoration to the throne. So, yeah, we can even pray for stuff like that. Yeah. Steve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perfectly appropriate and good to pray that God might specifically bring, raise up leaders, certain leaders who would be the kinds of people that, that would please God and benefit the people, right? Yeah. Yeah, so praying that God would do that, which would not only mean um, just kind of developing them over decades, but even that certain people, uh, if you think that it is good for a certain person to be elected over another person as a means to biblical ends, including this, it would be perfectly appropriate to pray for that. There's no reason why you couldn't say, well, this is what I think would be the way to do this. I don't have to wait until they get installed in office and then say, okay, now I'm going to start praying that they would not persecute us. If you think that one person is going to do a better job than another person, you can pray for that. Um, 
Now, I'm going to talk about this in later, uh, later lessons in this, in this class, not today. But um, we need to recognize that sometimes it is a judgment call as to who will do a better job of that and who will functionally have the best benefits and the best uh, way of bringing these things about in the Christian's life and all that government should be. And that there are, there's a package of things that are involved in what the government does that means that not every Christian is going to be on the same page about who would do the best job if they were put into office. So I would caution that even though you might pray individually for a person to be elected, um, and that there might even be times when most or even all of a church would agree on who the best person would be in any given contest. Uh, I, I would urge caution on making that too prescriptive and too determinative because uh, some things are judgment calls. So make sure that you're not making one person's placement into office the standard of whether or not a person praying is praying rightly or wanting the right things. You just need to be cautious about that. So make sure that there are, you're considering those factors as well. Um, so yes, prayer for raising up leaders, for even uh, God to put, into, put certain leaders into office who would bring about these kinds of things. Anything else you might pray for them? Yes, Stephen. Imprecatory prayers, where do they fall into this? Um, largely, imprecatory prayers are against people who are hostile toward God and toward God's people, right? Like they're not, um, it's not just people in general. So, um, yes, I think if, uh, you know, you can pray for someone's salvation and an imprecatory prayer at the same time. Uh, so I think it would fit into that as well, like alongside praying for their salvation. But God, you, you can also say, if, if you are not going to save them, can you, can you do something to, to eliminate them from being able to do what they're doing? Which ultimately is where, um, it's what God does at the end. Like it, he, um, you know, he judges all of the evil rulers over the, of the earth, those who have persecuted people. Second Thessalonians talking about repaying with affliction those who afflict you. So uh, I think you can hold both of those things. I mean, there's a little bit of a challenge in our mind to hold that tension, right? But but uh, there is a place for saying people are mistreating us. People are, they, God, will you do something about this? Um, Re Revelation 6, I'm thinking, the, uh, how long, oh Lord, are you going to abstain? Are you going to refrain from judging the people who have shed the blood of, of, uh, of Christians on the earth? So I think I just got, you got to do both at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe, I don't know. Let's, we should probably just, just know which one is easier for you to default to. And maybe for some of us, it's easier to just default to, God, just do something about this guy, you know, get rid of this guy and just bring him down. Uh, if that's, if your tendency is to omit the salvation prayer, then do that. Uh, if your tendency is to say, I just want him to be saved and all I feel is compassion for this person who is harming, you know, horrible, horrible, by horrible things, he's harming people then maybe you need to let the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms, uh, you need to let those kind of round out your theology of thinking about that because wrongs are still wrongs even if you feel compassion and want someone to be saved. And God does care about those things.
Yeah, it's a good question. Okay. Anything else we can pray for? Yeah, that, that what is wrong that is done in secret might be dealt with and not just, you know, not just covered up. Um, yeah, I know you're talking about um, Ephesians 5, right, where don't, don't participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. I th- I'm thinking about that. I think there, I think there may be a, a thread there that's connected to that. Um, I think probably the direct command in Ephesians 5 is that you are, it's probably more on an individual level, maybe on a church level talking about these things. But certainly wherever there is evil and people uh, get away with it because of they're using their power to conceal it or whatever, then it would be good for that stuff to, uh, to be exposed and to be stopped and to be brought to justice. So, yeah, I think that's appropriate for sure. Uh, yeah, Matt. Yes, uh, praying on behalf of other people, interceding for other people who may have sinned, may have done something wrong. Uh, biblical, it's a biblical precept, right? Uh, to, for godly people to stand sort of in the way of what God might otherwise do to the group. So Daniel prayed on behalf of his nation. But I think um, maybe even a couple of, of other more direct examples would be Job, who prayed for his children and offered sacrifices in case they had done anything wrong. Like that's, and he, again, he's commended as godly. The kinds of things he was doing, uh, generally speaking, are this kind of thing that if you imitate that, that's probably a good thing. And then in Ezekiel 14, uh, God is talking about uh, the destruction of Judah, of Jerusalem. And he says in verse 13, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they depopulated it and became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of the beast, even though these three men were in, the mit, in its midst as I live, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the country would be desolate. And, and what he's doing here, he's talking about just how bad things are. And uh, this, I, I understand this to be a deviation from what might be normal, which is that sometimes... God might look at upon a place or a country, a city, whatever, that he would otherwise bring judgment upon, uh, as he often did in the Old Testament. And because someone intercedes on their behalf and prays on their behalf, he might show mercy to them. In this case, he's saying, 
Noah could, could pray, Daniel could pray, Job could pray, and they are in the midst of this country. And he says, I'm still judging it anyway in this case. That's how bad they are. So, yes, I think that the, the underlying assumption behind this is um, that the, the presence of righteous people, the prayers of righteous people in the midst of even an evil uh, group or evil area is something that God might look with favor on it and, and respond to. So, yeah, if you're going, we live in the United States of America, we see a lot of people doing horrible things, evil things. We're going to pray that God would be merciful to us as a nation and to be merciful in a lot of ways. You know, not, not letting our, our nation be um, destroyed by, you know, invaders or, or something. Not letting it just collapse. Um, that he would, yeah, we don't deserve the grace that he gives, but we do want to pray that God would be merciful anyway and that we might be able to continue to do gospel ministry freely and that people would come to be saved and that the church would thrive. Like, we can pray for all of that stuff. That's, I think that's perfectly appropriate. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good question, man. Okay, anything else? Other things we can pray for about the government? You know, I would say that it's perfectly appropriate to pray uh, for taxes to go down if you're feeling the weight of that. That's fine. You, you, can, you can do that. You can pray for certain laws to be passed and not to be passed. It's great. If you think that that's best, you can certainly do that. So nothing wrong with, with things like that. Uh, we, we're free to ask for all kinds of things that are not told to us to do them in the Bible, but they, that we perceive they might bring a personal benefit to us. So this is what we do with prayer requests all the time, isn't it? We say what's within what God has said is okay, and if he hasn't forbidden it and we would like it and we think it's good and there's no, nothing wrong with asking, then let's ask. Let's ask God. So we can do that thing as well. Okay, uh, a couple of things then that we have that are left as far as basic responsibilities. Uh, this, is, this is kind of spinning off of this one, but desiring their salvation. Desiring their salvation. Acts chapter 26, we have the Apostle Paul on trial. And I just love this because you see his, his heart here, his selflessness. He has been mistreated by the government for a long time. They, they locked him up to protect him from being attacked. And there's really no basis for him even remaining in prison. So he goes before King Agrippa. And he gives this, uh, he gives really a, a sermon slash defense testimony about himself. And he comes all the way to the end and uh, he responds, or he, he says this in verse 23, that the Christ was to suffer, well, 22, so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both the small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light, both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king, Agrippa, knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I'm persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. But this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, and here's where he moves in. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Look at him bringing this directly home. He says, I'm here telling you nothing but what the prophet said was going to take place. Christ is going to come, he's going to suffer and die, and then he's going to be raised from the dead, and he's going to proclaim light. So he says, King Agrippa, do you believe that? 
I, I know you believe the Old Testament. He's not calling it the Old Testament, but I know you believe the Bible. And he, he directly challenges him to consider these things. And Agrippa sees what he's up to. He says, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul says this, I, I would wish to God, whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He doesn't want vengeance on them. He doesn't um, even primarily concern himself with what's happening to him. He has taken advantage of his trial and of his, uh, his time before the king to preach the gospel to him. And he eagerly desires that that's what would happen, that he would respond to this gospel message. I would wish whenever it happens, whether a short time or a long time, I want you to be saved. And I want everybody who hears me this day to be as I am, that is, to be a Christian. I want everyone to be saved, including this king. So he has an eager desire for salvation, and that drove his interactions with him. And I wonder, were you to get before a government official, what would be the first thing that you tried to convince them to do? Would it be to change a local ordinance or to reduce your taxes or to change a law that's making your life more difficult? Or would it be, I want you to become a Christian like I am. I want to make sure that you understand this. And I'm going to press you to see whether, uh, whether you will respond to this. This is Paul's focus all the time. We should emulate him in this. So desiring the salvation of government officials... Uh, and then, kind of, again, dovetailing out of this, one more responsibility that we have toward government would be simply what I'll call goodwill. Goodwill. And I want to cite, uh, among, I mean, besides what Paul has done here, in Daniel chapter 4, consider Daniel's circumstances. What happened to Daniel when he was a teenager? City's taken captive. He's taken captive out to Babylon hundreds of miles away, never to return, and his life is taken from him. He is made a servant of the king, and the king has been kind of cruel to him in some ways and has made his life difficult in some ways. And yet, when the king gets this dream, when Nebuchadnezzar gets this dream, listen to what Daniel says in Daniel uh, 4.19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while, as his thoughts alarmed him, there's a vision that Daniel uh, heard from the king that the king received from God. The king responded and said, uh, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. This is a statement of goodwill toward the king. He does not want this for the king. Uh, he wants the king, in fact, to turn away from what he's been doing so that this doesn't come upon him. Verse 27, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So keep in mind, the king is in sin he is proud before God. There's a reason why this vision came. And Daniel hasn't exactly been treated great by the king either. And yet, this is what he thinks toward the king. He wants good for him. He's, he wants 
a good outcome for him. Now, this includes for the king repentance as well, which ultimately did happen, although it didn't happen right away. But he says, May this, uh, if this only did not apply to you, if it was to those who hate you and those of your adversaries. So there, there's goodwill toward the king. We even see this in uh, the statements about uh, slaves being subject to their masters, to serve them with goodwill, to want what is best for them, to want good for them. This is not easy to do when people mistreat you from a position of authority. And yet, this is exactly what we are supposed to have, goodwill toward the people who are in authority over us. So prayer, desiring the salvation of these authorities, and then goodwill. All right, we have a couple of minutes left, so any kind of uh, questions or, or other comments on these matters? on these basic responsibilities that we have. Okay. All right, anything at all? Okay, all right, well, hopefully these are helpful to be able to just keep in mind that we're supposed to do these things no matter what else we think the government should do, no matter what else that we try to do with regard to the government. These are responsibilities that we have and uh, I hope that you'll take them seriously. I hope you'll be practicing them and that we can help each other do that. Why don't I pray for us as we close? God, thank you for this, uh, this time today. Uh, help us as we consider these matters, which are not easy for us to do in some ways. Our attitudes um, might not naturally go in these directions. And our, even our prayers might not go in these directions. But we pray that you would help us to, to, uh, to change them, to submit to what your will tells us in your word. We do pray, even now, for the government that is over us in various levels. We pray that you would save people who are in it. We pray that you would uh, help us to live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That we might be able to live godly without fear of persecution. That we might be able to, uh, to practice all that you would have us to practice. And that the gospel may go forth. And that we would be faithful to take care of our own responsibility to, for the church to be pure. And to... Uh, uh, to, to persevere in godliness ourselves. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.